Come on and talk And welcome to the tropes Come on and talk If you want a trope Wham bam Thank you ma'am Get on the talking tropes <laughs> Hi I'm David I'm Hannah And I regret everything Um <laughs> We're talking about Do you about... want to record a different opening? No I love it It's the worst And I love every part of it Um <laughs> We're we're talking about Space Jam today, which is yeah, also the worst. We're talking worst. about Space Jam in a in a wider context. Yes. We're trying to step sort of into the server verse, if you will. Oh god. And uh, I will maybe not. explore some of the business practices, the technologies, the storytelling tropes that led to Space Jam to a new legacy. Uh, rather than simply exploring it as a work of art. Yeah. So what did what did you think of the Space Jams? Uh, revisiting the the 1996 film and and watching this new HBO Max cross promotional uh, object. I, you know, I went into the new Space Jam, Space Jam: A New Legacy, with you know, like low expectations. I was not expecting art. I was not expecting you know to be deeply moved. Um, you know, I was just looking for a good time. And personally, it failed to deliver that good time for me. That's not to say it won't deliver a great time for kids, because I know that there were older people who felt similarly about the Space Jam movie that you and I grew up with in the 90s and early 2000s. Right, and were you entertained by that as a child? Oh, absolutely. Was that your jam? It was so my jam. Uh, you know, both a, you and I had a gym teacher who would exclusively play music from the Space Jam soundtrack. Like, you know, it is, it is, it is my childhood. Pump, pump the jam, yep. pump it up. It's time to say uh, Yeah, it's the soundtrack is iconic, that's Absolutely. for sure. And it's like a perfect encapsulation of the 90s in a nutshell. Oh, yeah. I think part of that comes from the fact that the 90s were so commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, a- apparently, the director of the film Space Jam referred to that time as the renaissance of commercials, the late 80s and, uh, and 90s. Okay. It was a time, according to Joe Pitka, uh, that, that he said it was the renaissance of commercials, People were trying to make something transcendental in commercials. And uh, he came from documentary and he wanted to put the truthfulness of documentary into commercials. Uh, And, you know, he worked with lots of people in the NBA. He worked with Michael Jackson. He worked with uh, the Beatles. He worked with Yoko Ono, a lot of celebrities. He was a very prolific commercial director. And his big hit, you might say, of commercials was a little-known commercial about Bugs Bunny, Michael Jordan, wearing Nikes, playing some basketball against Marvin the Martian. Mm -hmm. And that was the impetus for Space Jam. Yep, there you go. But also the fact that Michael Jordan was trying to, you know, expand his brand. And Warner Brothers was looking to, you know, compete with Disney and create some properties that were marketable out of their old IP. Right. So it was always a, a corporate product. It's not oh, yeah. new for no. a new legacy. No, no, no. It's no, a no. new legacy of old IP. Right. But I think <laughs> what what is savvy about Space Jam, the original, versus a new yeah. legacy, is the fact that, you know... The people making it knew that Michael Jordan is not a particularly strong actor, and so they wrote a script <laughs> around that. Um, right. Whereas, you know, the people making A New Legacy did not really seem to grasp that, like, LeBron. Yeah, they were writing essentially act. like a typical Hollywood screenplay, yeah. which is not what fits the Space Jam brand. No. I mean, Space Jam 1 is anything but. A, a typical screenplay. No. It's, you know, 20 minutes of this and then a little sidetrack to that. And now we got to catch up with all the players who lost their talent mm-hmm. and do a little montage of them sucking at basketball. And then <laughs> right. we're going to go get Michael's shorts, you right. know, and wrestle them away from a dog. It's, you know, it's like, set pieces no to showcase the Looney Tunes, you know, that is. And me- the animation. Right. And to, to showcase the technical aspects that they were really proud of and that kids really respond to because they like to see human cartoon interaction. For sure. Uh, since the dawn of animation, as so many reviews 
of <laughs> of these films have said. Right. All, I, like almost every review that I've seen and all the production notes of the original Space Jam all were like, if you go back to Gertie the Dinosaur back in 1920, uh, <laughs> humans and, and animated characters have always interacted. Uh, yeah. But... Really, when you think of, like, cartoons in a human world, what's the first movie that you think of? I mean, Roger Rabbit, of course. Right. Exactly. That was, like, the big step. It was this Amblin-Disney co-production, part of their new Touchstone Pictures brand. Um, And they were, you know, trying to make, like, a serious, almost adult kind of animated animated uh, feature yeah and it was based on this like comedic satirical noir book about like r- you know racism and redlining but in the context of cartoon characters right um and they were also talking about unions and all this other stuff and labor and blah 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 policing <laughs> um and that's what uh, that's what who framed roger rabbit was about but it was also about just the techni- technological advances that had led to the ability to use traditional animation and you know traditional filmmaking to combine these these two mediums together. So what they would do is they would shoot the whole scene and anything that the cartoon characters would interact with, like a, if they pick up a plate in the human world, they had to build like a little rig, some kind of like robot or wire or puppet right. to do that lifting. And then they would animate over it and they would literally paint uh, animation cells, cells yeah. like they would for, you know, any Disney movie before that, and then layer them, and then they would photograph it <laughs> with, a, with a camera. So I think it's interesting to think of the difference between that and then 1996 when it's laser, uh, laser printing mm-hmm. of these uh, film strips. Still film, not, still not digital. Right. But, but everything that's being put on the film is composited in a computer all of the coloring is done digitally so it can be adjusted and whatever and everything exists within a three-dimensional world that's created by this green screen technology of of the 90s mm-hmm. which was very popular oh yeah so we've moved from filming a real space and putting animation on top of it to filming a real person in a digital space and placing them digitally into it Mm -hmm. and then compositing it but it's still like real animation cells it's still real you know whatever but you're but you're lasering it right in and then moving to today where it's full digital compositing full digital filmmaking and there's absolutely no analog in that process the majority of this film was for sure filmed in a green screen basement somewhere you know like yeah i mean that that continues from from 96 but what's what's missing is all of the you know traditional animation is now done in the computer it's not mm -hmm. hand drawn which it was right back in the 90s even though the coloring was done digitally Mm -hmm. it was still drawn with pencil and pencil and paper in some way shape (laughs) and then now it is not at all it's fully just like toon boom or whatever animation uh you know technology that they're using right and i think that the limitations my argument is basically that the limitations of of the previous technologies sort of dictated what they wanted to do Mm. right the existence of you know these like gremlin style like rigs to move all of the things that the animated characters would move made it so that Who Framed Roger Rabbit directors and, you know, and filmmakers all wanted to have the animated characters move and affect things in the real world. Mm-hmm. That was the goal. And then once we have a CGI basketball to bounce around, <laughs> it's no longer about that. It's about capturing the essence of movement of a Michael Jordan. Right. And then adding the animation on top of it. Mm-hmm. And placing him in a fully, like, animated world. Right. And then you get to today, and it's just about there's an anime, there's a 2D animated world, and there's a 3D animated world, and they should very rarely interact in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Because they both look so neat and tidy, <laughs> and they're in their proper little boxes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's... I'm not saying that one is like worse than another, but I'm saying I think technology dictates form. I in this case, I think you're I think you're right. Um, 
I definitely think it's interesting some of the animation choices that they made that, you know, when LeBron gets transported into the server-verse and ends up in Toon World, um, you know, he becomes animated and very light-skinned, which was an odd bit of colorism that I just, like, could not get over the entire time. Okay. Well, I, you know, I, I wouldn't comment on that personally, but I think the the fact that he's animated yeah. throughout the film is that they they couldn't get him for as long as they got Michael Jordan for. That's demonstrably the case, because you can't you can't film him and then animate characters around him and have the same level of control. In fact, it's possible that when when producers change their mind about things and directors change their mind and directors actually get switched out for new directors mm-hmm. um, that you need to basically be able to reanimate the entire serververse segment <laughs> without uh, reshoots right. as it were. Um, and so that could be part of the reason that uh, that there is no LeBron as a person interacting with the cartoon people. Well, there is. There's very little of it. There is, but it, you're right. It's very minimal. Minimal. Yeah. There was, I, I think I counted about, you know, two or three shots, actually. It was the Mad Max segment, mm-hmm. uh, the the Matrix segment, mm-hmm. and there was a brief segment where they all turn back into cartoon characters after uh, Al G. Rhythm is defeated. Yes, um, and I mean, would I would sort of count the you know when when Bugs and everyone is three D animated like right, but but what I'm saying is that's a whole different pipeline, mm. you know, because what was what was really astounding about the original Space Jam was that they were doing CGI, traditional animation, and live action all at all once. in the same shot for most of the movie for like. About an hour and change of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is like, you know, just like weird shots of just him hanging out with his family <laughs> or weird animation segments where it's just the the tunes and the nerd lux. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those suck. And the only thing that's good, the only thing that's good, and you can agree with me or not, but it's true. The only thing that's good okay. is Michael Jordan with the Looney Tunes. Interacting with each other in creative and interesting ways. That's all there is. That's all there is. I mean, I I do disagree, but I <laughs> I respect the point. You know, I I know for what a what was fact, your favorite part of the of the fully animated or fully live action segments? Um, I liked a lot of just like the character interactions that we got from the Looney Tunes in like, you know, just even early stuff um, when the Monstars first get there, like Bugs Bunny just kind of like messing with them. Um, you know, I, I like, guess I find it's, it so entertaining. It's, it's just feels like it's lesser than any given Looney Tunes short. It has nothing like sure. new to offer. Sure. Right. I mean, yeah, you're seeing all the Looney Tunes interact with each other, which I guess is kind of unique. Um, if you don't count like the Bugs Bunny Daffy Duck movies or you know whatever, some um, of the shows or the Roadrunner movie, um, but uh, you know the, the thing that's new, the thing that Space Jam offers that nothing else can, I think, is Michael Jordan just like picking up Tweety Bird, yeah. unconscious off the ground, or getting kissed by Bugs, Bugs Bunny, Bunny, and then you see his lips. CGI stretch yeah. when the lips disconnect. And that's something that you couldn't do in the Roger Rabbit era. It was right. new. They were pushing boundaries. Yeah. And and I think that one of the things that's that's sort of getting everyone's goat is that Space Jam, a new legacy, pushes absolutely zero boundaries, technical narrative or otherwise. <laughs> I think you're um, totally right there. I think you've right. hit the nail on the head. Like if Space Jam uh one came out today mm-hmm. i don't think that it would have the same impact mm-hmm. or maybe it would because it's been so long since we've had something like that mm-hmm. but uh just the fact that um you know the fact that it was like the first time you could ever see a horrifying monstrosity like michael jordan being crushed into a ball <laughs> and then slam dunked or seeing his arm stretch right from half court yeah to score the winning point yeah like 
that had impact not just because it was like the narrative culmination of Jordan in a tune world, mm-hmm. but because no one had seen something like that in a movie. Right. Ever. And, you know, then the new like ending of like the last point of of a new legacy where he like, I don't know, somebody throws him a jump pad yeah. in a video game and he does an extra jump and then gets posterized. Yeah. Uh no. That's not that's nothing. You've done nothing. Yeah. It's it's not narratively fulfilling at all it's not technologically interesting yeah i think i think the conclusion that you sort of i don't know about conclusion but right i I think the the premise that you've stumbled upon is uh is cogent at the very least right now i have a, a little quote here from um a supervising animator from the original space jam okay uh which is they say roger rabbit was the vinyl lp and this is the compact disc. Oh. And I think that is so, you know, that's an iconic line yeah. that, for me now. Like, that to me is like the stand-in for everything <laughs> in terms of like what the 90s were. Because, yeah, the compact disc was an amazing innovation. Yeah. It, it revolutionized music mm-hmm. and the music industry and how music was sold mm-hmm. and how it was consumed. But... There are always going to be purists who like the vinyl. Right. And once CDs became obsolete, they look like dog shit. <laughs> right. They sound like, you know, like bad compared to you can now download and stream high quality music, higher quality than on those CDs. Right. And, Absolutely. and you can also buy vinyl, but no one's going to go out and buy CDs. CDs right. You know. Right. Like CDs have become this sort of obsolete middle step in, in, in a way that, like, Space Jam kind of has as well. Um, right. But I don't think, like, I'm, in the same way that, you know, we're we're currently discussing all of the ways that, you know, streaming music, um, you know, the, the problems with that particular mode of technology, I think we're also discussing the, the problems and over-reliance on CGI and green screen and, you know the these sorts of techniques um in in their modern movies in the same way that we right. talk about our modern music right um do you remember when we did uh, an episode on the uncanny yeah and we talked a lot about cats yes yeah is there anything that you find uncanny in either of these uh films the space jam mm. films mm. like there's nothing that is like disturbing You know, there's nothing, like, disturbingly uncanny. But, you know, in the same way that Space Jam has always been corporate, there's, like, an added layer of cynicism to A New Legacy Mm -hmm. in the fact that it's, like, look at all the things that we Warner Brothers own, you know, Mm -hmm. in the same way that Disney is very much, like, in Wreck-It Ralph, you know, look at all the things that we, Disney, own, you know? Right, like, that can be uncanny. I also think the fact, all of the background characters that were live-action shot, mm-hmm. they don't look like the actual characters, they look like people in Halloween costumes <laughs> of those characters. A little bit, yeah. So it's kind of like, I've been invited to a horrible, horrible Halloween party, the worst, with all of these people who tried way harder than me on my costume, and I'm just sitting here, you know, trying to enjoy some basketball. Yeah, I'm just trying to watch basketball, and all these, (laughs) these, pardon the the phrase, but all these freaks, all these droogs, and all of these Batman villains, and horror movie characters have stumbled in (laughs) to disturb my children. (laughs) Yeah, and it's just like I don't know, like some of the the some of the properties that they choose to include, you know, like I get it. Of course Harry Potter, like tracks, like can be enjoyed by kids. Uh, you yeah. know, you have all the Hanna Barberas and all the uh DC the superheroes. Right. All of that. Um, you know, like makes sense. Sure, fine. Mm-hmm. What 
what is baffling to me is the inclusions of, like, The Matrix and, like, yeah. really Mad Max Fury Road. That's the one where right. I was just like... Yeah, well, how about this? Could you call it uncanny or unheimlich, you know, like how <laughs> Freud would have considered it, to see a film that you maybe have nostalgia for or remember fondly, like Casablanca having Yosemite Sam instead of the Sam from the film. Right. And they say, play it, Sam. And he tries to play it. Yeah. Uh, or if you have nostalgia for Austin Powers, mm-hmm. uh, which you might. Um, <laughs> Austin Powers 2, mind you. <laughs> and uh, you see Mini-Me being replaced with Elmer Fudd, and you're like, that's not quite how I remember it. It's, it's almost like returning home and things just being a little bit off. But I mean, Um, that's supposed to be the joke, you know, like... Sure, but it's a joke about... It's a joke at at the viewer's expense, almost, because it's uncanny, it's strange, it's not quite right, and they feel that, and they're making fun of you for feeling that (laughs) I guess. Um, To me, it's just like... You know, movies always have jokes for the adults in them, but, like, are these, like minuscule like I can't even call them homages you know like these just like ripoffs of like we own Austin Powers so here's Austin Powers we own Mad Max so here's Mad Max you know like there's nothing deeper to it like they're not they're just like what do we own that we could stick a Looney Tunes character I'm not saying that this is an intentional uncanny thing but it's i think there's a little bit of uncanniness to all of space jam and new legacy well it's just it's because it's uncomfortable i would point to even uh the scene where it's like a body horror sort of affect when the 2d characters are transformed into 3d Mm. and everyone universally sort of gasps and goes like this is wrong (laughs) this should not be even bugs bunny himself saying it yeah which is weird Cockadoodle, do not do this. <laughs> that, as Foghorn Leghorn says. That was, that was pretty good. I will say the one laugh the movie got for me was uh, the Foghorn Leghorn. Oh my god, I'm forgetting what the scene was precisely. What's the scene where they get Where he Foghorn? gets booted from the game? No, no, for no. For going up to Pete and saying, this is, uh, this is not uh, cogent. Or is it the one where he's uh, Khaleesi? Yes, it's that one where he's... That did not make me laugh that was at all. The, he's like, winter, I say winter is coming. <laughs> that was the only one that got me. I did laugh that. That one, to me, sucked the worst out of all of them. Just complete non sequitur because we have to promote Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, because it's the only tentpole holding up HBO <laughs> as a brand. <laughs> and I think the the way that it's organized into like these planets in in the yeah. same way that HBO Max is structured into these hubs yeah. this is a total tangent but like oh, it's creating it. this this sense of like hom- homogeneity to the serververse being like our experience of of traversing the web right. where you go to a page and then the page has little splinters and hubs that things accumulate in and where you kind of live for a little bit mm-hmm. total tangent but anyway no, I, I think... want to talk about the uncanny a little bit okay, more, just, okay. to, just to sliver more, because I wanted to compare it to um, a, a theorist, Tsvetan uh, uh, Todorov's theory of the uncanny and the fantastic okay. and the marvelous. So in his definition, which is sort of related to Freud's uh, uncanny, but it's, it's distinct. Okay. In his mind, the uncanny is a story where the laws of the world are broken, but eventually they are restored mm. because uh, he's referring to a literary genre, which is when you know you have something that is beyond our understanding, but it's eventually explained either by it was all a dream or it magic was science. you know a trick by somebody. You know, Scooby Doo. There's never a real magic thing there. You take the mask off. And then you reveal it was all a person the whole time. Oh, I see. That's the uncanny. Okay. But in his mind, the fantastic is when you can't tell for the the story whether it is one way or the other. Okay. Whether it was real or or just an illusion, a mirage. Mm -hmm. And then the the marvelous is when it's revealed that the the magic or the uh, expanded reality is true and that it's, it's all 
beyond our understanding, supernatural, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the first Space Jam, you still follow me? I'm following you, totally. <laughs> I think the first Space Jam is the Marvelous. Absolutely, agree. And the new Space Jam is the Uncanny. Where it's all given a scientific explanation and it's all revealed to be part of this simulation yeah. that doesn't break the laws of physics and doesn't doesn't shatter the illusions of reality. Right. And everyone returns to the real world as if everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Now, then it becomes the fantastic at the very last scene when Bugs Bunny enters the real world. Uh-huh. And it wasn't all a simulation. <laughs> it maybe was real. But maybe isn't. Maybe, in fact, they're still in the simulation right now. Oh, God. No, it's 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 there. It's there. It's in the text. It, it really is. I mean, it's... Like, you can certainly make that argument, but I think <laughs> it's, like, an argument that is left there not by... Not on purpose, but by lazy filmmaking. You know? Maybe or maybe not. But what I'm saying is... <laughs> Uh, the change in genres here, I think, is really important to how enjoyable it is. Because Space Jam 1 has no pretext. Right. The Looney Tunes live at the center of the Earth because they do, in our hearts. Yeah. <laughs> and there's space aliens because they exist in our hearts. Yeah. And in this, it's not that they exist. It's not that anyone in the world would acknowledge that they exist if they saw them. It's just that they are within a server that contains an algorithm that has the power to simulate our dreams and wants and desires. Mm-hmm. It's all explained in a very Star Trekky, <laughs> very hollow deck kind right. of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that sucks. <laughs> sucks ass. <laughs> it's boring. No one wants that. That's not what the Looney Tunes um, are. They are marvelous. Like that's the whole point of yeah. them. You know. Right. So that's my main point. I, I want to go back to, to the point you were making um, earlier when we were still still in the uncanny um, about the the conception of the serververse and you know yeah. how it mirrors our actual online consumption right. and lives in certain ways right um, and and the way that the corporate internet kind of functions you know right. Um, where, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you're all in this neck of the woods and you will stay there. That's the goal is to right. keep you in well, the of course, server-verse. This wasn't even the first Warner Brothers property to do this. Mm-hmm. We just forget because the Lego movie was actually good. <laughs> but the Lego movie is precisely this. Yeah. It is the world of our imagination is owned by a company. And the company can subdivide into different worlds or they can allow the crossovers to happen. Mm-hmm. But we don't have control over it in, in the real world. They control our imaginations <laughs> because they own the properties that make up our collective imagination. And that's what play is. Mm-hmm. So that's the Lego movie. Yeah. In this one, even the concept of the movie existing in the first place is a product of an algorithm. Right. Uh and it's, it's trying to be self-aware and saying, like, look, we're acknowledging it. We know. It's like it's a remake. It's a reboot. Whatever. <laughs> Doesn't work anymore no. because we see the, the that it's true. Yeah. It's not a joke. Yeah. It, well, it doesn't work anymore, one, because it's, it's just too true. Um, you right. know. But also, I think we are so saturated in meta content, you know? Like, sure. the the mid-2000s were just everyone pivoting to meta really hard. And, like, that's yeah, where we are. I think we, we still are. like meta. We still like, yes. like, as a culture, we like yes. Rick and Morty. I, well, we I... We just don't like Rick and Morty appearing to say, <laughs> hello, this is our corporate cameo. Please refrain from referring to any of the actual content of our show because it is offensive to children. Right. Uh, <laughs> and bad <laughs> for children. Sorry, I was just saying like that they, they the, the meta. People, yes. people aren't just oversaturated with meta, but they, they just don't like that meta is being used as an excuse for corporacy. Corporate, for sure. Corporateology. Corporateness. Uh, the corporate infusion of yeah. all of our media. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you're right. Like, I think people still, and people always have, and people always will enjoy content that has 
you know, some level of self-awareness. But at this right. point, you know, everyone's sick of corporate Twitters because it's like, we right. get it, you're a corporate Twitter. Like, right. it's not fooling but, but us But Space anymore. Jam 1 did this, and uh, Looney Tunes Back in Action uh, did this as well. Mm. You know, the Looney Tunes have been famous for self-referentially talking about the Warner Brothers, their media empire, right. the corporate stooges in charge. <laughs> but at least, like, with Looney Tunes Back in Action... The corporate, you know, people are portrayed as, like, the bad guys, the dumbasses, the, you know, the stooges. Right. Uh, and they're they're really humorously portrayed. Whereas in this one, it's, like, Sarah Silverman and um, Stephen Yun, uh, like, they're... They're just, like, yes men. They're, I guess, like, incompetent, but they're not, like, villains. No, they're just, like, doofy, but, like, they're so boring. They're just sort of hapless at the will of the algorithm, which was created by, like, no one. Yeah. You know? Isn't that kind of spooky? Yeah. That the algorithm in this, it doesn't have a creator. Normally, like, in a story of, like, you know, a rogue AI, there's a, a an idealistic inventor, a yeah. mad scientist or, or something. Mm-hmm. Um... A father figure for I mean, the AI. I, I, I think the AI in this is, like, in execution, a horrible and boring, and I don't care about him at all, villain. But, like, ideally is a very interesting and possibly compelling, like, villain. Do you have a fix? Are you going to write writer doctor it? <laughs> I don't know that I necessarily have, like, a fix, but, you know... This idea, I, I think it's a it's a common theme, at least in sci-fi literature that that I've read, um, you know, of AI developing its own personality and, you know, becoming sentient kind of on its own. And, uh, you know, and, and it's certainly a theme that other sci-fi movies have explored as well. Um, but, like, this suddenly going evil and rogue like it's just it's just it's so petty here you know and and we're not sure what his initial goal is right i i think if i were to put on my my script doctoring glasses which i don't have because i've never done that but um i would give him a a a daddy he needs a dad uh, a creator of some kind uh, because he's obsessed with the relationship between LeBron and his son. Yeah. He wants to destroy it. He wants to I mean, release it's... what he sees as a creator from his creator. <laughs> and then he has no... Like, he sees himself as a creative being. Right. But he doesn't have a creator to rebel against. Yeah. Yeah. So he's just rebelling against, like, mild criticism. Yeah. It's true. And, like, I would like to see him reformed. You know, it's a kid's movie. Right. You know, at the end of Space Jam 1, yes, the corporate ba- asshole Swackhammer gets destroyed, but the little the little nerd Lux, yeah. they realize that they can, you know, throw off the uh, the um, the shackles of oppression yeah. and uh, and take the capital from the capitalist. Yeah. Uh, which is good. And then become <laughs> nice. Um, but why can't, why can't Don Cheadle have a papa? Uh, Papa, can you hear me? And uh, and why can't he, you know, reconnect with that creator and realize that he doesn't have to steal everyone in the world for attention mm-hmm. because he can have the love of his father just like Dom can have the love of LeBron. Mm, you know, why not? Mm, I like this That would fix. be my, my script doctoring. It's a much better but, fix. Uh, I like it. Yeah, but, you know, I can't really say that with confidence because what I know for a fact is... Tons of producers and screenwriters were called in to do exactly that and fix this script, and it came out like this. So, I mean, it's a too many cooks in the kitchen scenario, yeah. or it's a, you know, too much corporacy, corporateness uh, scenario, or it's just like a bad script written to be stupid and consumable and easy. Yeah, I don't even know. It's it's just so bizarre, and the acting is so poor on just, like, everyone's part. Like, Don Cheadle phoned us <laughs> in so hard. He like, did. I don't, did that. Yeah. I don't blame him, but, like, Jesus Christ, did he just get his paycheck and go home, you know? Yeah. So, 
I know we've been talking a lot this year about HBO Max as a branding like project and Disney Plus, honestly. Yeah. But this has been the year of the streaming, you know, of the streaming site uh, exploding and the cross promotional streaming branding marketing whatever because of COVID right. and because people need to compete with Netflix mm-hmm. uh, and, and in order for their companies to to work. <laughs> um, but I know we've talked about that a lot, but I want to talk about the way that the ways that Space Jam a new legacy works or doesn't work to promote HBO Max as a platform for families for kids and what strategies they've been using. Mm-hmm. So, do you would you subscribe to HBO Max to show Space Jam a new legacy to your kids? No. <laughs> No, but I think some people would. I think there were there was a lot of people who who streamed it in the U.S. alone opening weekend. Two point one million U.S. households streamed Space Jam: A New Legacy, and that's in addition to a lot of people going to theaters to see it. Here's the thing, it was though: the I highest think grossing WB animated movie. I I think that you know, if if we're going to sort of compare streaming services and why people subscribe, you know, you subscribe to Disney Plus for your kids, right. you know, and then there's... For the so- legacy stuff. Right, there, and for the legacy stuff and even the new stuff, you know? Uh-huh. Um, but, like, you know, that that is for your kids. And if you get some enjoyment right. out of it for, like, maybe the Marvel or whatever, great, you know? Um, you subscribe to HBO for you, and then this is like, oh, a nice treat that I can show my kids, mm. you know? But is that what they want? Or do they want, know. you know, Sesame Workshop to be a reason you subscribe? <sighs> Cartoon Network is on HBO Max now. Right. And are they trying to say, basically, that Cartoon Network, Space Jam, they are one and the same? My evidence for this, <laughs> you may know what I'm about to say, is Teen Titans Go See Space Jam, mm. which is a crossover film between... Teen Titans Go, the sort of chibi versions of the uh, the Teen Titans cartoon from the early 2000s, which crosses over with the 1996 Space Jam. It premiered on June 20th, 2021, so about a month before this dropped, uh, and it was just like a riff tracks of like 45 minutes to an hour of Space Jam with them fast forwarding through the boring bits. <laughs> To get to the fun bits, and then with little like little like speech bubbles of the the Teen Titans characters giving little commentary. So like Cyborg gave fun facts because his role was that Space Jam was his favorite m- movie and the best sports movie of all time. And then and this Beast is Boy, the original Space Jam that they watch. Yes, the okay. original Space Jam. So in the in this special, like the nerd Lux arrive and start making friends with the Teen Titans mm. and they, they're they like hanging so out maybe, in the Titans Tower. Maybe that's what they're trying to get you to do. You know, they're trying to get you to subscribe to HBO so that you see like HBO or, or so that you can show your kids Space Jam that you're nostalgic for. And then, oh, right. look, a new legacy is there. Yeah, let's watch the new Space Jam movie together. You know, like... I, I think there's an element of that for sure. And I think there's also an element of just saying, well, Looney Tunes for kids, Space Jam for kids, Cartoon Network for kids. Uh, kids! Uh, you know, Sesame Street for kids. Like, they have kids' properties and they're trying sure. to corner that market as well as, like, a prestige for kids thing, maybe, <laughs> even. Um, maybe as opposed to maybe the you know the Coco Melons of Netflix or something. God, the Coco Melons of Netflix <laughs> scourge um, upon our souls. It's fine, right? Or it's just another way that they've discovered to mine old IP for and milk them for as much as they're possibly worth. Teen Titans Go, very popular show. Let's just instead of writing an episode, market it as a movie, mm-hmm. and it's just a recut of a movie we've already made with like twenty seconds of extra footage <laughs> that we had to animate very cheaply. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, like Teen Titans Go has been a very lucrative property for them. They made uh, a theatrical movie, a straight to TV and DVD movie, uh, and this is like their third movie yeah. apparently. Uh, weird. 
can't believe um, anything else on like the marketing and brand integration in this product like i mean the first space jam is obviously so saturated with product placement and you know nods right. to to all the Nike. commercials and product placements McDonald's. that that michael jordan was doing at the time um yeah and there's there's definitely some of that here, but I feel like there's a lot less of it, and it's more focused on the Warner Brothers properties as a whole, right? Than like I think it's also like weird, Pringles like or whatever. It's almost like it's almost like more bizarre to see like, um, you know, just like the like it's more of exciting to see space cross or i guess to see the nba crossing over with the looney tunes because it's like you can't even imagine those two properties going together right whereas then once you start integrating like everything in the in the warner brothers like archive it almost just becomes like a hodgepodge and it's like eh. the fact that the looney tunes are there isn't even that exciting no anymore. it's not it's this movie because everyone's there this... it's like ready player one it's like legos it's like you know any of these cross promotional things right like lego batman has this scene where all the villains from Warner Brothers come out. And it's like the Gremlins and the Daleks and the uh, Voldemort and uh-huh. uh, other things. And they just like all come out. It's like, we've released all the villains from the Warner Brothers. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they don't say Warner Brothers. But like it's obvious that it's just stuff that they had the rights to. Right. Um, so it's like, it's weird. And then it happens here too. All the characters that they have rush in. King Kong and, you know... <laughs> Pennywise the, and Mr. Pennywise. Smith and the yeah. the uh, what are the villains called in Mad Max the the, the wild boys uh, or whatever the silver men <laughs> I don't know what they're called um, yeah no it's I think you're right in that it makes the inclusion of the Looney Tunes themselves less special and less noticeable and yeah. and I think it's also interesting just like from a story perspective how. In the original, you know, it's like the Looney Tunes go out and seek um, seek Michael. Michael Jordan's help. In this one, LeBron gets sucked in and, like, forms, like, kind of a alliance of uh, convenience and necessity convenience. with Bugs Bunny, who just right. kind of uses Bugs Bunny him. wants to reunite the gang, and he wants to reunite his family, and so there's a thematic connection, but it's, it's vague. It's vague. I think, like, it's interesting how hard the original Space Jam worked. To make its premise feel a little more plausible. Yeah. Which didn't work. But, like, it worked really hard at it. It was like, well, why do they need to get Michael Jordan? Well, the other basketball players of the time had their talent stolen. Mm -hmm. And the only one they didn't steal was Michael because he was a baseball player at Mm -hmm. the time. And not in the NBA. Mm -hmm. So, they explained that away. And why does he, you know, need to play basketball? Well, because these guys were short. And so they thought basketball as opposed to another game now in this one they work backwards so they don't have to explain the basketball because it's lebron right and they explain lebron going in by he's just a very popular social media figure yeah it could have been anyone it could have been you know it could have been beyonce in a singing competition but it wasn't it was lebron because he had it was lebron so it's basketball right Right, and, and it's then, Dom Ball because that's his game. Right, it, it it also it's so interesting how much this movie like just like cribs off of Hook, you know, like it's, okay. it's so I explain. I've never seen Hook. Oh, you've never seen Hook? What? Please, just just stop. Just tell me why it's Hook. Okay, so the, like the whole thing about Hook is that Captain Hook basically kidnaps Robin Williams' children. Robin Williams is right. Peter Pan. Yes. And he's like, oh, what I'm going to do is make your son love me. And, like, that's exactly yes. what Oh, my God. That does. was what I was thinking of. I couldn't think of, like, where does this trope come from it's that, hooked. like, make make him hate his dad because of the way his dad treated me. Uh, yes. It's Hook. Yes. That's right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was like... <laughs> This movie is Hook. <laughs> it's, it's basically Hook with Warner Brothers characters. Um, it's, it's so weird and just like, but even the hookishness of it is like so stretched so thin. Like the father-son tension is like barely there, you know? Right. That's why I said you need the, you need the daddy for Cheadle. Right. You need Cheadle's dad. You need Al's papa. 
Um, any words about uh, Lola Bunny? Lo- Lola I don't Bunny? Know. She's fine. She's whatever. She's fine in both. She's fine. I enjoy her voice. She was. I think more it's interesting looking one. at the like, quotes from the producer or the director being like, "Lola Bunny in Space Jam One. She is a a, a modern woman of the '90s. <laughs> She's empowered and and strong." And, like, it goes back to our strong female character right. episode from years back. Right. Just, like, in the 90s, what strong female character meant was, you're hot, but you know it. <laughs> you're hot, you know it. You got the skills, because she does have the skills. Right. You know. You always have to have the skills. You perform, but you don't have any character outside of being hot and having the skills. Right. Yeah. And I that's... mean, I guess she cares about bugs. She likes bugs. I guess. But for what reason, I but, don't know. But also, you you know, you, you don't get, like, getting called names, you know? You can't be called Right, don't call face. me babe, don't call me doll, don't call me whatever. Yeah. So that's the 90s. What is an, an empowered and modern woman today? Um, she does a bunch of wonders stuff, and then... Wonder Woman's it's, around. It's Wonder and Woman's, and... Is a warrior of a type. But she's got a good heart, and so she'll fail a test right. to save her friends. She she gives an inspirational speech at one point. Yes. Uh, she's got she the skills. She still has the skills, has not gained any character traits or humor, but continues to do those things without being a sex symbol. Yeah. Necessarily. I mean, she yes. could still be for somebody. I don't know. Everyone's like, oh, Lola's boobs are gone. And it's like, yeah, they're fine. She's they're... just wearing a different outfit. You're right. They're I mean... there. She's still got curves. <laughs> she just is wearing different clothes. You furries. <laughs> <laughs> furries don't even like it when she wears clothes. What do you care? <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, we really have not talked enough about, um, you know, what the Looney Tunes and Space Jam in general has done for the furry community. Um, right. Which yeah, is we can have another episode about that. We did that whole thing with Disney, we did. you know, I think. I think, I think we've we have covered. covered, yeah. <laughs> um, last thing I really, really want to talk about is um, what is the genre? What is genre, first of all? Um, a loose collection we can return of to and, and We can return to Todorov for this a little okay. bit. Okay. We're going where, back to Todorov. Uh, he, in theorizing the the uh, the fantastic, he, he talked a lot about how do we define a genre? Can we know a genre without reading every example of a genre? Mm-hmm. Of course. We use inductive reasoning. It doesn't work in science, but it works here. Um, can we you know, define a genre with strict parameters? Not always. It's a series of connections and and whatnot. But it has a fundamental makeup, is sort of what Mm -hmm. what he said, that there are things that you cannot change uh, without it uh, breaking genre. Sure. In in that way. Yeah. Uh, So what is the genre of Space Jam, the original, using whatever evidence you would like to pull? This is a a tough one. Um, Right. Is it a sports movie? Mm. Mm. In the style of the Mighty Ducks, Major League, um, uh, other of their own, League the, of their own. Uh, uh, the the not... is it a sports movie? <sighs> yes and no. Like it's it's so much okay. more meandering than your than your average average sports, sports movie. movie. It doesn't follow the genre tropes as much as you would, would expect it to. I would certainly call it a comedy. I think we can safely place it's it in the comedy. comedy genre. Of course. But also, it's not exactly like one character's journey. It's sure. it's not like a Hollywood comedy necessarily. It's like it's a comedy of errors. Mm-hmm. It's a comedy of of gags and it's just sort of things happening. Yeah. And in order to understand the gags, it requires you to suspend your disbelief about so many laws of physics and things. The people in Toon World can stretch mm-hmm. and expand. Right. They are, they're stretchy. Is it like a Bill Murray style comedy, which is where the writers and the producers come from? They both come from Bill Murray comedies like Stripes and Ghostbusters mm. and... Um, meatballs hmm. and Beethoven. Is it in that genre? Uh, yes. Well, one of the writers. I uh, is it that genre? 
No. <laughs> like, I I wouldn't necessarily... But they think it is. But they think But they it think is. they... The intention... Not that intention matters. But according to Ivan Reitman, the, he, when asked what this movie is like, what it, genre it is, uh-huh. he said the movie this is most like is Ghostbusters because of its mix of genres. A, it's a comedy, and it's a big adventure film, and there are parts that are kind of scary. So... Ivan Reitman, this producer, he's coming in with this notion that, like, we're trying to recreate the magic that is Ghostbusters, which is, of course, sci-fi, supernatural, comedy, action, uh, and and also just, like, you know, like, r- there's a little bit of romance in there, but not, not really. Mm. It's a focus on just, like, these core, like, ridiculous... Uh, genres, mm-hmm. the the I guess you could call it the the uncanny or the or the fantastic, mm-hmm. and he's trying to put that with this, which is not sci-fi in the way that Ghostbusters is. It's sci-fi in the way that like Jimmy Neutron is, where yeah, aliens just come down and they're like, hey, we're aliens. That doesn't you know shatter anyone's understanding of where who where they are in the universe. Right. It's just like okay, it's there's just aliens. That they're here. there. Yeah. Right. Uh, just as bizarre, there are Looney Tunes in the center of the earth. That's not sci-fi. That's maybe fantasy, maybe comedy, maybe just just childlike cartoonness. Right. Uh, it's I fantastical, <laughs> but right. it's not what one would describe as you know. If someone was like, "I want to see a fantasy movie," that would not right. be like. But what it is a comedy, for. and it is a it is a sports. It is a movie with sports. Yes. A sports movie. And it and it definitely uh, it is follows a blending of genres. For sure it's a blending of genre. It definitely follows some of the sports arcs as far as highs and lows and right. uh, that sort of thing. And goes. in terms of a genre of comedy, Reitman believes that Bugs Bunny is like a combination of Groucho Marx and Bill Murray. So if anyone was wondering why is Bill Murray in this movie? <laughs> Which I wondered for many, many years because I saw the film and I was like, I don't even really know who Bill Murray is because I am 10 or whatever. (laughs) I'm young. Uh, Why is he here? Why is he friends with Michael Jordan? Are they friends in real life? The answer is no. One of the producers just dropped him off is the only explanation that we get for how he gets underground. And that is literally true. The producers know him. They've worked with him. They've written with him, the writers. And... And they see this movie as a Bill Murray comedy slash genre blend in the style of Ghostbusters. Now, (laughs) to move on to Space Jam, A New Legacy for a moment. Yeah, let's do it. That is not Ghostbusters. Because now, genre blending is the norm. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as these rigidly defined Bill Murray comedies. And kids' comedies and animated comedies. Everything is the same. Everything is blended. Everything is every I, genre. I, I wouldn't say it's as as desperate as all that. I wouldn't say everything is exactly the same. But I agree no, no, no. that... You're right. That, everything you know, is the same in that everything is able to bleed into everything else without someone going, what is this? Is this Ghostbusters? Right. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Yes, for sure. That the... There are fewer and fewer movies that are genres unto themselves. Right. Take for exist exi- take for example Ghostbusters 2016, mm-hmm. which is a reboot. Reboot is its own genre. Right. It has its own conventions. Mm-hmm. Being self-referential, being having cameos, having jokes about how corporate everything is mm-hmm. and being really big about like like focusing on the new cast right. and how great everything gels. So like Ghostbusters 2016 has more in common with Space Jam and New Legacy even than I think Ghostbusters 1 had with Space Jam. Oh, absolutely. I 100% agree. So isn't that kind of a thing that shows the the changing of the times? Yeah. In terms of genre. Totally. I I agree. And I think, you know, this this one would be hard to classify as like a sports movie almost, you know? Like tell me if right. I'm wrong there, but it, it's it like a video game movie. Right, right, which is I guess a new version of sports movies in the modern era. Sure. And it's also kind of like um 
like a superhero movie. Yeah, it's you know you put together seems, a team and they fight a big bad. It seems so informed by superhero movies yeah. more so than anything team else. Up. Yeah, End Game, these kind of the things. team up, the crossover, the reboot. That is that is kind of the space in which this. Right. New movie list. And those are necessarily crossovers, I would right. say. A team-up where you're using properties from different universes different in the server-verse, mm-hmm. different you know planets. You, the, you're necessarily going to be crossing genre lines. Right. But back like, in the 90s, it wasn't so simple. You exactly. had to pitch it as, this is like Ghostbusters, <laughs> which it wasn't. It wasn't. I, if I'm not being clear, Space Jam is not like Ghostbusters. <laughs> um, it, it's... It's so interesting because, you know, like, movies, like, like I feel like A New Legacy happen not all the time now, but, like, they're so uh, much more common, you know, or, yeah. you know, episodes of a TV show that do this are so common. Whereas, like, these crossovers didn't exist that much before. Like, we did a whole episode on crossovers and how much more prevalent they have become um, and, you know, right. I think we did that, like, two years ago now, yeah. if not now longer. It's and way more true. It's even Godzilla more true. vs. King Kong is one of the biggest HBO Max properties, and, and Warner Brothers properties in general, mm-hmm. uh, Warner Media properties in general. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's huge. It's, I mean, you know, it's it's just... And the King Kong vs. Godzilla came out in, what was it, 1970-something, and, and it meant nothing. It was not a big... <laughs> It was not a big hit. Right. It was not but I something think, that shaped... I, I think what's interesting is that the sort of consolidation <laughs> of who owns the rights to these characters has yeah. made it much simpler for movies like these to be greenlit. And the concern with making sure that there's money being made back and like wringing as much as you can out of old properties before they, you know, become public domain or whatnot. Um, you know, that, that is the concern and that is the goal. And so that is why we are just going to see more and more and more and more of these until like there's nothing left. And (laughs) to return all the way back to our first point about the technical changes, the technology changing, all of these things can look aesthetically matching mm-hmm. because of CGI where, you know, like, yes, in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, you had all these different properties from different animators from Disney and from Warner Brothers mm-hmm. interacting. And with this new fictional, uh, you know, Roger Rabbit Verse. studio that they made up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like. You can have all those interact because they're all cartoons. Right. But what if you create an aesthetic where CGI and humans are natural to interact with each other? Mm -hmm. Then you can cross over anything. Mm -hmm. And it's totally easy and it's all part of the pipeline. You just outsource it to some Canadian VFX company and say, make me, make me a Fred Flintstone. I'm going to put him in the Space Jam. And then he's there. Anything. There's no, there's no must, no fuss. Make me an agent. You don't have to get Smith. a guy who used to work on the Flintstones back in, you know, 1960, <laughs> who's now like unemployed and just sits around all day smoking cigarettes. Um, <laughs> what that's is a this story I made up? Um, but you know, anyone can make anything in the aesthetic right. of Hollywood. Right. And anything can interact with anything else. Yosemite Sam can be in Casablanca. Right. Doesn't fucking matter. Yep. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. It's it's interesting. I hope someone can do yep. something creative and fascinating with it and not boring and right. corporate, but my hopes right. are But slim. the thing is, I think even the things that are inventive and are creative in this movie, mm-hmm. which there are some, they get absorbed into the aesthetic of the reboot crossover adventure movie you know, superhero movie, family you know, comedy, promotional object, right. family comedy, whatever that is. Um, I just, yeah, you know, I think that it's, I think it's an interesting artifact. I'm glad that we talked for so long about it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I personally have have nothing else to say at the moment. <laughs> but I'm sure that our our listeners at home, we said a lot of crazy hot takes that I don't think I've seen anywhere else. 
And I've seen some crazy hot takes about Space Jam. I've seen Jack Saint's video. Have oh, you seen that one? I have not watched that yet. Exciting. That's something to check out after this. It's wild. Okay. Um, As his videos and, usually are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and there are plenty of other hot takes about the first Space Jam, the second Space Jam, Looney Tunes back in action. There are people who defend that movie. There are a lot of hot takes out there about the Looney Tunes. But I don't think I've heard any of our hot takes out there. No. They're, they're so hot if off you have the a take riddle. on one of our hot takes, please tweet at us at Talking Tropes, and I will angrily respond to anything that you say that disagrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, th- th- that's all, folks. <laughs> yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.